0: This is open floor time. We can talk about anything to be talked about. So it's open.
1: I'm Sarah. I just want to say that I had a lot of resonating with what you were talking about. And um, right now I'm, I'm struggling because I feel like, I feel like, um, I would like to, to have that community where I actually feel that people know me and you know I get that support that other people who aren't practicing the way I am like kind of don't seem to really get what I'm doing and that would be really great. Um, and and I love coming and I feel like it feels so great to come and connect and all that. But it still feels like I come once a week And have this great interaction and discussion and then I go back to my life and I feel like incredibly isolated in what I'm doing and how I'm feeling and and I come back and it's incredible again but it doesn't feel I guess like it doesn't feel like it's my life. It feels like it's a a thing I go to and I, I don't really have a question. I'm just kind of that's
0: something that it's so, about. So it's a common thing. How many people feel that way? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's common that people feel that the meditation is, is part of it and that it's not integrated into the rest of the life. And, and I think it's really important to begin to look at that and begin to really put an effort, if it's important to you, to start bringing the meditation into your life. So I heard that the punks were doing Commit to Sit. So there was an agreement for a month or two months or three months to sit for every day for whatever, and you'd have a buddy. And so your buddy and you, when you did your, you did your sit, you'd text the other person. Yeah. And I thought, it's brilliant. One, because it keeps you true to your commitment, but the other so that there's a little thread of, of continuity, of contact with somebody who you know is doing the same thing. So I think you probably might be helpful to invent ways of touching base more regularly so that it's not just once a week, you know? And, you know, you're not short on creativity. This group is not short on creativity. <laughs> you know, figure out what that would look like. And go for it.
2: You know, another simple possibility, Sarah, would be attending another, like, like the Friday night meeting. I didn't even
1: know there was a Friday night meeting. <laughs> <Yeah, there's>, <laughs> a, a
0: Friday night meeting. It's, it's at a different
3: location. Um, okay. But it's, uh... Be, that'd be twice a
2: week, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's interesting, you, you said... Um, that we're not taught this in college. And Dina, Joshua, and myself actually were taught this in college in our master's program, so I just kind of giggled to myself. But those three years, <sighs> Dina's still in her second year. <laughs> now that I'm a graduate, and Joshua is a graduate, um, not always fun, not always happiness and love, not always easy. And it wasn't until the last minute for me that I was able to join, fully join. Um, And I think I'm still learning. (laughs) I think I'll I'll be reflecting on that experience for years, that I was with the same group of people for three years, on retreat for two months and then a month, lived together on retreat. Um, in classes, in groups together, processing together, uh, talking about the difficult things, um, cultural and gender and race and all of the things that we bring of ourselves. And yet I still struggle. Um, Some of you know and some of you don't know that um, Boulder disbanded because of a sort of mutiny that happened. And what I'm learning from that is that there was this lack of, of ability to communicate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, now that school is over, trying to reflect a little bit on that and, you know, what we needed, what wasn't there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I'm still not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but how sad that was to me
3: mm-hmm.
2: that this, this group of people who some had sat with me for two and a half years Felt like they couldn't talk to me, and um, so it's something I'm still looking at and um, willing to sit with and willing to to stay. Mm-hmm. I also have two friends that were female facilitators in the in the community who decided to leave for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I think it's my karma to stay and work it out. I just, I want, I want to work it out. I want to learn from it. I want to learn more about how to build community mm-hmm. and how to work through these things. Wow. So I'm so grateful that you talked about it and that you brought your experience mm-hmm. with you tonight. I mean,
0: I can say a couple of things. One is, is that this stuff is excruciatingly painful. And also, you know, we each have our different ways of responding to that. And I find, you know, people who are willing to stay and work it out, I find that very courageous and also really helpful. Because it's like um, the foundations don't get well established if, you know, they keep getting dismantled, you know. But part of the willingness to work it out, I mean... We each come with our own stuff and some of the stuff that we have to offer is really lovely and some of the stuff that we have to offer is rough diamonds, you know. It's unprocessed. It hasn't been polished yet. And so the the feedback mechanisms need to be in place so that as a leader I can hear the things that I'm doing that are not affecting people in a way that's helpful for them. But sometimes what happens is that people won't say. And then you have to find out is there anything that I have contributed to them not being feeling comfortable to say? And so it's it's humiliating and it's absolutely humbling, but that's what's needed. You know, if one's committed to growing the earth, one has got to be willing to walk through these fires of saying, have I in any way contributed to these people not feeling comfortable to say? And then be very careful that when you get any feedback it's not landing back into that place that I'm you know, I'm unlovable, I'm incapable, I cannot grow, I cannot do things right. You know, these deep seated habits of, of there's something fundamentally wrong with me patterns. You know, because sometimes when one gets feedback like that, that's where it lands. And that's not helpful. So it's like you know, if you're going to be in a circumstance where you're likely to get feedback and some of it's going to be challenging, and you need to buff out your own support system to make sure that it lands in the right place and doesn't loop in the wrong places. You know? Whatever that looks like, and whoever those people are, whatever that is like. But also, you know, for myself, you know, I was in a monastery for 20 years, and it took 15 until I felt like I was part of the group. Okay? Okay. <laughs> I mean, no joke, you know. Now, part of it was because the community was dysfunctional, and part of it was because it was landing into all of the wounded places in myself that hadn't released yet. And these two things were operating, you know, together. So it used to feel like the community, it felt like, you know, just being torn apart, like you're being ripped to shreds, you know. And then it started to shift. And then it started to feel very loving and very cohesive, you know, and very supportive. I mean, the sisters, there was other mad things that were going on that were not supportive, but well, that's another story. We don't need to go there this minute, you know. So it is, it's really, and, and you see, in the, in the Bu- Buddhist world, you know, I, I had not, didn't know of any other community where the women actually came together as a community where they actually manage to do this work because it's really incredibly challenging work. Mm -hmm. Yes?
4: Can you say more about when you're telling this story about Ananda and the Buddha and Buddha saying, you know, know, Ananda is the whole spiritual life, community is the whole spiritual life in relationship to... I mean, I don't know a ton about the Buddha's life, but it seemed like there were times when he really kind of went off on his own and was not necessarily supported by the community in order to to really discover deeper things about himself
5: and the process of the universe and and so on. Could you talk a little bit more about
0: that? It's certainly true. The Buddha was on retreats, and he would spend time where he wasn't in community, and there were times when the monks were having a tantrum and he got fed up. And he just said, I'm out of here. You guys want to have a tantrum? You won't listen to me. I'm out of here. And he just left, you know. So, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that happened, you know. But I think what he was talking about is not so much the times of being in solitude and silence and, you know, like that, but regarding the importance of um, spiritual friend have Now, I would... I would hasten to say that it's probably not so helpful for us to compare ourselves with the Buddha. It's just as a guess, you know, in terms of where we're at in our own practice. Because, you know, for for many people, the ability to be on long-term retreat is something that emerges after many, many years. So it was a, a revelation for me to hear Ajahn Pasano, who's... An abbot and has been for many decades who's very strong in his practice say that it took him 20 years of monastic life before he was well and strong enough to make good use of long-term retreat he couldn't handle the solitude in a good way you know so we come from a tradition that epitomizes silence and solitude as the way of practicing But many of us don't come from a cohesive fabric of belonging or a sense of knowing who we are in relationship to others and and feel really well with that, you know? So it's my sense that in India, people did come from a very cohesive sense of belonging. You know, they were part of families and villages and clans and, you know... um, The the individual had no relevance. They were part of a fabric of belonging. And so to take a person who's embedded in a culture and give them solitude is a different experience than when you take us lot, who come from fractures and traumas and dysfunctional families and nuclear families that aren't speaking to each other, and you put us in solitude, it's a different thing. And yet so many of us are introduced to the practice of Buddhism through retreat and through solitary. I mean, it's almost a, um, you, you know, I think about the first retreats that I went to. And, and, and so much of it is, is silent and not talking to others and noble silence and not meeting anybody's eyes. And, and there's an emphasis very early on in, in as a person is learning about mindfulness to concentrate only on oneself and one's mind and don't interact at all. It's kind of an interesting. Backwards? Yeah. Well, we have an interesting. Um, we have interesting edges because looking at somebody in their eyes is very evocative and it stirs things up, and it takes a certain amount of concentration and settledness to be able to work with what gets stirred up in a way which is useful. So uh, certainly having times of silence and introspection and being able to just see what's happening here um, is less complicated than trying to do it in relationship with another person. Yes. You know, So the silence and the solitude bit is not something I would ever want to throw out, you know, saying that it's not relevant. But it needs to be balanced. And the balance is where the interesting question is. How do you balance that? How do you actually make relationship as a formal practice, as a rigorous practice? So I went on a retreat last October with a man by the name of Gregory Kramer, who was at this conference, and he teaches insight dialogue, which I've shared with you on some occasions. Um, It's a way of breaking down the components of mindfulness and bringing it into the process of communication. And I was interested in having him come and teach a retreat together with me, partly because I want to learn this stuff more, partly because he's an excellent teacher, and partly because I wanted all of us here to have access to that kind of a style, which mixes, you know, classical meditation practice with ways of communicating with each other in a way where the communication becomes a practice itself. And my life turns upside down, so then I wasn't able to think about it. But what I want to do when I'm here these three weeks is bring this topic back up as to whether or not we want to have one of these retreats, and if so, if there are the people here who are prepared to do what's needed in order to organize it. Because, you know, Kat and Steve took the bulk of the organization of my trip this time, and they're both a little bit fried. You know, so it's it's like, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do this in a way that it's it spread a little bit more. Yeah? So, there's more people on board now, but they came on board just recently. And so, you know, there's a there's been an accumulation that has been carried. And so, you know, they're just, they've been overextended. So that's a question. Do you want an insight dialogue retreat? And are you prepared to do what's needed in order to make it happen? A question, which I'd like an answer to before I leave in three weeks. But... It's a good point. And there were several topics and several ways on this conference where, you know, the question of how do we have rigorous practice off the cushion is relevant.
5: It was interesting just coming back from Ireland um, and spending a couple weeks there and seeing how they view community and then coming back to America and Seeing very similar people, like in, in interactions, it's just having a very different sense of community. Mm-hmm. And I mean, particularly going through some of the small towns of Ireland, and they don't have TVs in, in a lot of the restaurants. They they actually have dialogue, and <laughs> you sit in in a place and have you know interaction with each other and with the people around you. Whereas then we, we, we come here, and every restaurant has five or six TVs. And people, instead of looking at each other and communicating with each other, are not having communication, not having dialogue, not even paying attention to what they're eating. And it was just very kind of interesting seeing that.
0: I was, um, Gwen flew out and met me on the East Coast, and we drove down the East Coast and did some teaching. And we were in a gas station, and there was a television above the gas, gas pump. <laughs> And I thought, you know, what's happened? I'm in an insane world. This is absolute like for five seconds, you're going to miss the television. It's like, you know, it's just like we're, we're in a mad world. I mean, it's gone absolutely insane. And so, you know, how to find some measure of sanity in a world that's gone completely insane is not a small thing.
5: I think it really hit home when I was at a family picnic this weekend, and I haven't seen, you know, my family for a great deal of time, and my aunt hasn't seen any of us for a couple of years, and half of my family is sitting there on their cell phones. My brother and his wife were on separate cell phones, <laughs> their kids playing around, and it was just very interesting to watch that dynamic of how we don't relate with each other.
0: And so then what happens is there's this unbelievable sense of loneliness, and then the loneliness causes this incredible sense of craving, and the craving causes the cycle of unimaginable forms of addiction, and the addiction doesn't satisfy the craving because it doesn't actually address the problem, which causes more loneliness. And then we think, you know, we're off, but it's actually, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is is that we don't have any kind of fabric that we can relax into that makes any sense. So, the Fort Collins folks, it looks like we're going to be doing a half-day retreat, and I haven't talked to them about it, but the theme that I'm really interested in exploring, I haven't gotten their sense, if it's okay, but what I'd like to do is to do a workshop around the topic of anatta, loneliness and connection. You know, workshop this. Actually spend a whole afternoon with this topic of where do we feel separate? Where do we feel connected? How does that work when our sense of self is strong and when we begin to allow attention to rest in this all-pervasive sense of awareness? You know? And how this is connected and where the skill is needed when part of what we're dealing with is, is trauma, you know So to be able to know the difference between trauma that needs a particular kind of attention to it, and it's cohesive or a lack of cohesive sense of self, which is getting pulling apart and feeling separate, it's different, and it needs a different medicine. Different things need different medicines. So, you know, what can happen in a monastic community, in a spiritual community, or in a group, is, is that people think, you know, meditation is the panacea that's going to cure everything. You know? And so, you know, there's... And and, and there's a, a deep-seated hope that there'll be a way that the suffering is going to end. But what happens when we open up to some of the things that we've, we have in our systems, and the memories and experiences that we've had... is is that we need to be more sophisticated than just, you know, one size fits all. And certainly meditation can be very helpful in all kinds of things. But the meditation that one does when one is dealing with trauma is a completely different kind of meditation than when one is dealing with other stuff. And you need to know what that looks like. So because like we are in a society where trauma is endemic it's like we are rife with it then it becomes imperative as communities we learn the skills on how to recognize how to support and how to allow the gentle releasing of this stuff and to know the difference between that and re-traumatizing you know I was flabbergasted to watch what happened with these teachers and the kind of life experiences that they've had. I had no clue. You know, about half of the teachers' council wanted to commit suicide or seriously attempted it. You know, so we're all here and human, this has been our journey, but what we're interested in doing is transforming this stuff so that the ground becomes fertile. And it is actually absolutely possible, that's what the practice can do. But it it needs some degree of sophistication. And safety needs to become an absolute priority you know what does it look like when you feel safe and what does it look like when you don't feel safe what does it feel like how can you recognize it how can you speak to it how can you add your voice into the suit that increases safety and what dismantles safety and is it a priority for the group to keep it safe and what does that look like And if it stops being safe, what are you prepared to do in order to make it so that it becomes safe again? There has got to be safety in order to do this work. It's absolutely not possible otherwise.
4: I I feel that it's an intractable meaning, just meaning difficult, meaning... Uh, Something that we're uh unused um, to dealing with. We haven't got the tools because of our society, because of the postmodern um uh, era because of the, um, where where we come from, because of our unconsciousness. Uh Eckhart totally was talking about children, someone asked him about um how to be, how to raise your children in a spiritual way. And he said that many of the children that are born in, in this time, in these times, are not going to have to deal with the unconsciousness that we, you know, my generation, even this generation that's here, is born into because he feels like, the, I mean, because of the evolutionary process. And I feel like this is kind of, part and parcel of an evolutionary process that um, some of the children will will not take on the unconsciousness that we took on at the age of five and six and seven as we began to accept the rules and regulations of society and the strictures of our churches and of our bosses and businesses and so on that cramped and damped us down and changed our motives and our our, pure, um, our purity. So I feel myself, I feel incapable, uh, I feel up against it like that, every day, every way, moment to moment, hour to hour, week to week, month to month. Um, I wrestle with trying to solve it and I just in the bottom line feel incapable of um, creating or finding the safety that you are, I think that you are talking about, the psychological, emotional, uh, spiritual safety that, that you need to be able to live in community, in a positive community and strip away a great deal. I mean, we're up to here now with this consumerism, militarism, and and racial hatred. And, and, you
0: know. So can I ask you a question? Is that alright?
4: Yes.
0: <laughs> Is it something you're interested in doing?
4: I'm absolutely... I mean, you know... Yeah, I mean, I wrestle with it like I knew I'm supposed to. Okay. But my only My, my next is, question is, oh, okay.
0: are you willing to show up and feel incapable as you bring your presence to a process?
4: Um, I'm absolutely willing to show up. If there's a place to show up, I'm absolutely willing to show up. But I'm frightened. I'm really frightened of it. And uh, my resolution at this point is that there are those among us who are capable. There are those among us who are beginning to feel uh, on the edge of the evolutionary cycle and are beginning to get some inklings of what to do and how to do it and how to work with each other in a new and enlightened way. But I'm not one of them.
0: Okay, and but perhaps you, you don't have to have all the answers. And you don't have to know how to do it, but what you do need to have to have is the willingness to show up with what you have, which is the fact that you feel incapable and frightened. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to show up with that, that's enough.
4: There's one one other insight that I feel like, and maybe just a kind of like a cop fall out, fallback position. But that is that my, what I can do is to support the teachers. What I can do, uh, in the words of Eckhart Tolle once again, is to be a frequency holder. He said many of us can, you know, the best we can do is to be a frequency holder, and that is do no harm. You know, like you say, if you can go through the day, celebrate that you did no harm. That's a, you're doing it you're doing the thing you know um, and only support and be as positive as you can uh, anyone who is you know, you know making some inroads and so I feel like I can do that for sure I,
0: I mean I don't, I don't feel very skilled or adept at building community and doing all this stuff you know got some skills, but not the kind of level of skill that is needed for the kind of tasks that I have to navigate. So, you know, it's... I've known for a long time that if there's any possibility of me having any chance of, 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 of building community in, in the way that feels resonant with my values, it's going to be because other people are going to be collaborating with me. Now, as i move in this journey i find other people who have skills that i don't have and somebody put into my hands a book called crucial conversations have you heard of that book it's a killer book it's a really excellent book you know i'd love to do a training with these folks and get more skill and practice and feedback on it because to me they really put they put it they've got it nailed you know the things where communication goes skew with and why silence or aggression comes in and how to deal with it, you know. So there are people who are thinking about these things in ways which is, I thought, really skillful, really helpful. So I don't need to have all the answers, but I have to be willing to show up and feel inadequate, feel impotent, feel vulnerable, feel scared, feel like, you know, I'm supposed to know and I don't have a clue, but I show up. And I can speak about it. I can hold open the space for what might happen. I can't make it happen because the happening bit is of people coming together and realizing this is good and it's important and it's going to take all of us to do it.
5: i can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. When you said... That you felt like it was very important to feel safe in this whole process. Mm -hmm.
4: What did you mean by that? Because it sounds like, you know, showing up, not knowing what, what the answers are, and being willing to be vulnerable is actually a part of the process, which is not being safe.
0: So there's a very good question. So I spent, you know, 15 years living in a monastic community and didn't feel safe. Okay. And I didn't feel safe in a really big way. It wasn't a little bit of not safety, it was a big not safety. Physically, I was not physically assaulted or sexually abused or anything like that. But what was going on emotionally was like not to be believed, all right? The safety that I found was the willingness to work with what was arising in my own practice and to find kinship with two or three in the group that I would feel support and some sense of ground or safety with them. So it wasn't in the group, it was with individuals, and it was a commitment that the practice would bear fruit. And I don't know whether what kind of percentage of whether what I was doing was coming from positive qualities like conviction and persistence and patience and having faith that the teachings actually would come to fruition, and how much of it was just the negative patterning of being in a situation that was tremendously familiar and repeating trauma patterns that I had deeply embedded in my system. And I think it's absolutely a mixture of both positive and negative qualities as to why I stayed in that. Okay? I don't think it's just positive. by no stretch. So the safety was alternating between inwardly finding it within my own practice and beginning to get a little bit more safety with individuals And then the group, beginning eventually to realize that it needed to be a priority. And when the group finally realized that the group needed to do this as a priority, then we got shovels out. And for five years, it was solid shoveling. (laughs) Solid, uninterrupted shoveling. So there
3: needs to be trust.
0: There wasn't any trust when we started this. There was a recognition that what we were doing was worthwhile. And that we had to do this work. And through doing this work, the trust emerged. But the trust wasn't there when we started it. So we were in a community. We trusted the Dhamma. We trusted the teachings. We trusted the goodness of the lifestyle. We didn't trust each other. I didn't trust. I trusted one or two out of 20 Individually, I could find trust with each person on some level. I could trust their intention, their aspiration. But as a group, it was terrifying the kinds of things that would go on.
4: And maybe it's that reason why we tend to isolate it to our own little
0: world. Of course, because who wants to go through this stuff? It's <laughs> excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have the skills. We didn't have the ability to do it. So we got somebody to help all right, to your corner, and your corner, and back in your corner, you know, because the projections, and the transference, and the, and the mess, and nobody could figure out what belonged <laughs> to who, and who belonged to what, and it was like, and then she'd bring us back into our own personal process, so that we could begin to dismantle what was happening for us, and what it was related to, and you know 90% of the first layer of all of that was our own early childhood stuff that was getting played out in the group dynamic you know and then and then eventually and then we had this incredibly complicated group dynamic because we were a subgroup in a larger group that was hostile <laughs> you know and and the the degree of the hostility towards us didn't become apparent until later it was there but it was under the carpet so we were living with elephants, but we couldn't actually see the elephant, you know. And then we got to see the elephant. It was quite a remarkable elephant.
4: Well, it just seems like just like individual you know, egos you know, require suffering to grow spiritually. That maybe community needs to go through the kind of process of you know, falling apart, coming together, and falling
0: apart. It, it does, and there's cycles, and it goes through, you know, so like, it, it absolutely is true. It absolutely is true. You know, it's seasons and storms and then cohesiveness. And then make
1: room for all of
0: that. Exactly, you know. So, you know, what was happening for me in Colorado Springs was excruciating just before I left. It was just absolutely excruciating. It was like the the fabric had torn and there was no way to patch it together because people had made decisions without actually speaking to me about it. But that happens, and it takes a long time to learn, that when you tear the fabric, it's actually much more painful and takes much more time to heal than if you stay in the pain with each other until you come to some kind of resolution that you all feel comfortable with. It takes an unbelievable amount of suffering to recognize that staying in the pain with each other is actually less suffering.
4: It's kind of like suicide. If you just bail out, then you've got to come back and deal with it eventually, (laughs) maybe economically anyway. So it's better to stay with it, even though it's so
5: excruciating, and and not cop out. Since that keeps coming up. For divorce, like definitely,
1: I see that, too, play out in our culture a lot. And people not really wanting to stick with it. Instead, they're just like, I need to end this now. So, and that's been, like, a huge. I mean, my brother and my dad are getting divorces right now. And it's just like, how do you just walk away, you know? So it's very interesting that we just don't stay with, We don't know how to stay. I see that all the time.
0: But there also needs to be some discernment, because, you know, what I experienced in England, so I felt the sisters came together and got cohesive, but we were up against walls that had reinforced titanium, you know. And so they were destructive patterns and no way to negotiate with them. And it was like, you know, we had tried for 10 years, for 15 years, to find platforms for discussing some of this stuff. And, you know, the heavy-duty, you know, retrenchment of patriarchal values came out and said, this is unmovable, you know, and it's not going to shift, and we don't want to talk about it anymore. So when you're in a situation which is abusive, it's not about trying to find platforms for discussing. It's about recognizing what you're dealing with and surviving, you know. So with all of this stuff, it takes a certain amount of sophistication and we can have ideals that actually don't fit the circumstance.